0: Hello, everyone, and welcome into this edition of the Sports Detective Podcast. I am your host, James Williams, and today I talk to Joey Weaver, who is the host of Basketball Conference, the ACC football podcast. Joey and I basically recap the entire 2022 football season because, in the middle of college basketball season, what else are you going to do? We talk about almost every team in the ACC. Apologies if you wanted to listen. And hear us talk about uh, every team. We just did not have the time. It would have been a two hour podcast. But we cover most of the season pretty much the biggest, most interesting stories Miami and Mario Cristobal, North Carolina's roller coaster ride of a season, Florida State being kind of a surprise contender in the conference, Clemson's offense, which is a recurring theme on this podcast. We also talk a little bit about Louisville, Georgia Tech another surprise season by Duke and then towards the end we talk about which programs kind of have the that were not as successful in 2022 might have the brightest future and what other ones might also have the bleakest future this is a pretty long podcast a little bit longer than I usually do on here I talked to Joey for about 50 minutes and without any further ado here is my conversation with Joey Weaver. It may be the middle of college basketball season, but I thought it would be the perfect time to recap the ACC football season. Joining me right now is Joey Weaver. He's the host of the basketball conference, the ACC football podcast. And Joey, let's talk about uh, a team that was pretty good on National Signing Day yesterday. It's the uh, Miami Hurricanes. They were one of the programs at the end of 2021 that tried to make a big swing, spending a lot of money on Mario Cristobal and his staff. His first season there, pretty underwhelming. Mm -hmm. What should we make about an underwhelming first year? And what about Cristobal and the staff should we think about going forward? How long should Miami fans be thinking like, hey, when are we actually going to start competing here? When are we going to take this talent that we're getting in the recruiting rankings When was that going to start producing W's on the football field?
1: Well, first off, James, appreciate you having me on. I I can understand, you know, being in the middle of basketball season, how you ended up finding our podcast. But make no mistake, it's called Basketball Conference, but it is a football podcast. A little uh, tongue-in-cheek ACC joke there. Regarding Miami, it really was an odd place for them. I think they got a lot of national attention last offseason when they brought in Mario Cristobal. Felt like that was a little bit of a coup from Oregon. It was a little bit of flexing some financial muscles. They go hire Josh Gaddis off of Michigan, off of his Broyles award win uh, winning season, I guess, in 2021. Uh, lots of, of positive momentum, it seemed like. And then they came out, I think that it was the first game or two of the season. They just absolutely smoked like Bethune-Cookman and started off strong. And then everything seemed to kind of crumble from there. Uh, Miami is, I just, I, I can't totally figure out Miami truthfully. And and I never really have been able to on this pod on our podcast. Like they're a team that it's funny to me. People talk about national signing day and like how good their recruiting class is there. I think it was a top five, top seven finish for the hurricanes. It's like, Oh, this is a big deal. You know, Mario, Mario Cristobal is making his impact. And I, I always ask the question, okay, so Miami now has more talent. How many games in the past have they been losing because they weren't the more talented team? They've always had more talent. They had more talent than the ACC. They've always had one of the deepest rosters if you just go through and look at stars and uh, recruiting rankings, those types of things. So has it ever really been a talent issue for Miami? Not really. Like when they've been going six and six, seven and five, you know, kind of these middling seasons, it seems like there's more of a a maybe a coaching issue or b maybe a culture issue within that locker room. It's it's not that far off, honestly, from what I wonder about with Florida State over the last several years, and obviously they, they're they coming off a really good season in 2022, but for a number of years coming off the Jimbo era, it's like there was like this rot inside the, the the locker room of guys just not, I don't know if they weren't putting in the effort, if they just didn't know how to win, what exactly it was. It seems like they finally got that switch flipped, but that's the thing I wonder about with Miami that the talent and, and how that relates to the rest of the ACC. I mean, they've got like a top three roster in the ACC. Um, like you said, I mean, again, good, good recruiting class, plenty of momentum there off the field, but it did not translate to results on the field. Um, and the, the other thing that I wonder about with them, so the the news came out in the last week or two that Josh Gaddis had been fired uh, from his post as offensive coordinator there. And we, again, we said He was really well-regarded coming in a year ago off of that Michigan staff. But you wonder, like, that offense at times was was really underwhelming. And I say at times, like, pretty much the whole season, it was a really underwhelming offense. My question then becomes, okay, well, if you had a coordinator who was just winning the Broyles Award – Broyles Award, sorry – the Broyles Award, um, that's a guy that you should name an award after – you, the guy wins the Broyles Award, comes and joins your staff, and all of a sudden his offense is, like, really bad. I mean, it took step, several steps back from when, uh, you know, had Tyler Van Dyke just absolutely rolling uh, the previous year. Uh, offensive coordinator uh, was Rhett Lashley. That offense all of a sudden looks terrible. Like, is that is that your Broyles Award-winning coordinator that's the issue? Or is that maybe related to a head coach who came in from Oregon where he had won Justin Herbert? And that offense always seemed a little bit like it couldn't quite get out of third gear. So I don't know what the timeline is. I I would imagine for Miami with the amount of money that they are spending uh, with the the level of, I I think, you know, when they're expanding the playoff and we're we're just in this age where it seems like we're working more and more towards, you know, the haves separating from the have-nots. I think there's going to be some more urgency there in South Florida to make sure that you are included within the haves and you don't get left behind. I don't know how long he gets. I know for sure you should be in a bowl game at the very least, which they weren't this year. You should be doing that. But, I mean, ultimately, James, they need to be winning eight, nine games, like, instantly. I, I just question if what is plaguing that program right now is enough uh, that is going to take a while to fix, or is that something you really could fix overnight? That I don't know.
0: With the financial commitment that they've given Cristobal, he's going to get the time to flesh it out. He's going to at least get like four or five years, and then we'll see. A thing, I I talked to a person from Miami a few months ago at the end of the season when the team was struggling, and he basically told me, now this could be, sometimes too when you do this, sometimes you have to be aware of like fan propaganda. That's a a big thing. Mm -hmm. Basically, he's told me that, hey, Miami is a team that Cristobal takes over this whole roster and the style of play that they want to play and some of the players that they currently had here, combine that with like a few injuries here and there. It just didn't really fit the type of team that they want to have and they want to build. And kind of my counter to that was kind of what you were saying at the beginning was they still have the best talent. They're going into a lot of these games and playing teams that they should still be beating they should be beating duke mm-hmm. they should be getting blown out by 42 to florida state they're still a talented team they had a quarterback at the beginning of the season that was supposed to be a first round draft pick this year which again i think it's a fun game to go back and look at all the people that going into a college football season are actually considered a first round draft pick and then see where they are at the end of the season um a thing with miami too with crystal ball I think there's always been this misconception with Oregon that that Oregon was just running away with the Pac-12 every year, kind of how Oklahoma or Clemson were doing in their conferences. With Cristobal at Oregon, they were they were really they were a really good team, but they really weren't dominating it the way that they should. And from where they recruited, they were mm-hmm. like they're again they were still being good, but in some ways they were underachieving, especially with Washington uh, at the end of the Peterson era. And the Jimmy Lake kind of fiasco. Stanford fell off when Cristobal was there. USC was talented, and they'd had a few good seasons here or there, but they were kind of a mess. And it was basically their biggest contender was like Utah mm-hmm. for most of those years. A lot again, all the California schools were kind of like in flux. They should have been just running away with that conference year after year after year, and they weren't. Right. And you talk about like the culture bringing it back to Miami is you really need to change the culture. There is kind of what your point was. And one thing I'm just not a hundred percent sure is if Cristobal is that person that can really do that. Cause maybe it's a bigger job than maybe people realize, even though they still can get talent.
1: Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, you wonder too, I, Cristobal, just his, uh, his persona, his, the way that he kind of portrays himself, he's a, he's a pretty uh, gruff kind of seems like a, a, a more classic Football coach, you know, going to try to yell his way through problems like those kinds of things. I, I wonder a little bit how much does that translate to today's, you know, high school juniors, seniors, and, and college age players. Um, not that he can't recruit them, obviously he can, but then does that translate to actually coaching them up and and uh, getting them to play in a way that he wants them to? Um, clearly, whatever he was doing, it was working at, at Oregon at least to a certain degree. I, I, I kind of agree with you. I. I they won a lot of games. I don't know that they necessarily fully realized expectations, though. It, uh, you know, at least not all the time. Um, they had the one really good year in 2019. They finished fifth in the country. They won the Pac-12. They won the Pac-12 in 2020 by getting into the championship game like by accident. So I don't know how yeah. much I really count that as a conference title. Um, not, not to mention just the weird COVID year. But I don't know. It's 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 interesting to to watch for me because that is like a total wild card program. I mean, there's been jokes made about, you know, for the history of the Coastal Division, it's like nine times out of ten, Miami is picked to win the division at the, the, the preseason, you know, the ACC kickoff by the media. And yet they only won the division, if I'm not mistaken, they only won it once. So it's like there's something that goes on with that program in South Florida that just doesn't – has not translated to wins for the longest time, despite the fact that they are almost always more talented than, than most of the teams that they're playing. Um, the one other thing I'll, I'll mention is Cristobal, in his background, he was an offensive lineman. He's an offensive line coach. I believe what he really wants to do is play like a really physical kind of smash mouth brand of football. I don't know for sure if Miami is like in South Florida is the most conducive environment for doing that, where it seems like, you know, the teams in Florida, and I guess you know maybe with the exception of like Urban Meyer's Florida teams, it seems like where they have really thrived is on a little bit more of the finesse stuff. You know, you've got uh, a lot of skill talent down there. And that's, that's really, I think the the bread and butter of of South Florida and Florida recruiting in general is more so skill talent rather than line talent. So I, I question if what he's trying to do, is he going to be able to do that uh, just recruiting guys in Florida, or is it going to have to be a little bit more of a national approach? Because I don't know that they have the guys in the trenches down there in high school, Uh, that are going to be able to play that style of football in a successful way that's going to meet everyone's expectations.
0: North Carolina kind of had a head-scratching season. If you look at their overall record, face value, 9-5, and lost the ACC championship, you look at that and be like, well, that's a pretty solid year for North Carolina. But if you actually follow them week to week to week, like you did, like a lot of college football did, they were in a lot of like crazy games, and it was. I was looking at it again this morning before we recorded. They could have easily lost five of those nine wins. They're mm-hmm. pretty close in a lot of those. Some blast, you know, games that got decided in the second half and the fourth quarter. But they also had three of their five losses. I also feel like they could have won two, specifically like their bowl game that ended in pretty dramatic fashion. Knowing all of that, Drake May was obviously a revelation this year. A guy that's probably going to come into next season as a true Heisman favorite. What should we make of this North Carolina season? I, I'm really not sure because it's a—you know—are they good? Or are they bad? What what was the deal with them this year?
1: There was definitely a luck element at play. In like you said, I mean, probably about half the games that they played. I mean, you had a two point shootout win against Appalachian State. Uh, kind of kinda held on to beat Georgia State by one score. You had a three point win at Miami, you had a three point win at Duke, you had a three point win at Virginia, two point win at Wake Forest, a four point loss at home to Georgia Tech, a three point double overtime loss to North uh, NC State. Like and then in the bowl game NC State's only-
0: like fourth string quarterback.
1: Exactly. Yeah, good point. Good point. And, and then Oregon in the bowl game, you had that game one and lost it at the last second and is a one point game. So it's like you're just playing one score games, you know, week over week. But basically in, in none of those, maybe the Georgia Tech game being the only one, the only exception, it's like their offense was not the problem. Like at almost any point in time, their defense just could not get stops at times when they needed to. And again, we mentioned they won a bunch of these games and they did, but it was like these games were a lot closer than they needed to be. Cause like you said, I mean, Drake may looked like a Heisman contender for most of the year. Honestly, I think if they win those final two games of the regular season, he's probably in New York with the other Heisman finalists. Like he was that good all year long. Um, that's been the story under Mac Brown since he's been back in Chapel Hill is Phil Longo's offense scores, a lot of points. They had a couple of pretty good quarterbacks back to back. Drake may now following up Sam Howell. Um, they were at their best in 2020 when they had a couple of pretty dominant running backs as well, as well as behind a pretty veteran offensive line. They've done well on offense. Defensively, they've recruited very well. They've had a lot of great talent on that side of the ball coming in from high school, and then they haven't been able to do anything with it. They hired Jay Bateman, who was running a really good defense on the other side of an Army you know, option offense. Versus this up-tempo, high-flying Phil Longo offense. So that was kind of a mismatch and didn't really work out. He's gone after uh, the previous year. Here comes Gene Chizik. He's not making magic with with what they got there. I think one of the moves to keep an eye on is that they did get rid of Dre Bly, their secondary coach. Um he's a guy who played there. He is beloved. He he recruited his tail off. I mean, he had a number of really high-end defensive backs that came in for that defense. And yet that being said, that defensive backfield was never any good under him. Like they had issues communicating, they didn't know where they needed to be. Those guys never realized their potential. So, I think issues on the back end. They never really they've never really gotten a great pass rush. I don't know. It's it's all defensive issues for for North Carolina, and I think that's where maybe you saw them win a couple more of the close games is probably related to having the better quarterback in almost every single one of those games and uh, getting the ball last on a number of occasions. But it is a team that you know the way that they've recruited. It's another one similar to Miami, where like that is a more talented roster than most of the ACC. It feels like. They should be better than this. And then you look at the record, like you said, and well, they won nine games or whatever it was. Um, but definitely, I mean, the way it was going, they were they were nine and one. They were nine and one and they finished nine and five. Like that's you understand how that can be kind of disappointing to to win nine games, but then also you know, be kind of disappointed at the end of the season. So it was a very strange season. Um, I, I wonder a little bit how much is is Mac Brown round 2.0 kind of wearing a little bit thin. Where and again, they're winning plenty of games, but like they're still kind of not meeting expectations entirely. So that's one that uh, there was a lot that went on there, a lot that went on, and I'm curious as anybody to see kind of where do we go from here, uh, especially with one one more year of Drake May. Phil Longo's gone; he's the offensive coordinator at Wisconsin under Luke Fickle now. Um, so just, I mean, a lot of a lot of change I think in that program, and and we'll see you know what that. In-
0: We can transition to a more optimistic team that happened in the ACC this year. Florida State put together their first 10-win season since 2016, since Jimbo Fisher left. Mike Norvell will be entering his fourth season in 2023. Does he have this program back to where we should start seeing Florida as, or excuse me, Florida State as a team that should be competing for ACC championships year in, year out, because they were pretty good this year, and I don't think it was a fluke.
1: I don't think it was either. And you look at a lot of the games that they won; they were blowouts. I mean, they they won games big against Boston College, against Georgia Tech, against Miami, Syracuse. Uh, you know, they they won those games big. They lost by two to NC State, lost by six to Clemson. Their worst loss was a ten point loss to Wake Forest. Like so, when they won, they won big. When they lost, they lost small. That's that's a really good sign. I need to see. I need to know what the next two years look like at this program next year a just can they can they repeat what they did here because i agree i i I saw a significant difference in this team just with my own eyes on the field on the scoreboard everything from this year to previous florida state teams i need to know can they do that again in 2023 number one number two i needed to know if they can do it in 2024 after jordan travis leaves and they got to find a new quarterback so I think that's the the two – the next two years will be extremely telling for what is Florida State this day and age. Um, is this Mike Norvell thing going to be a longer-tenured situation? Um, but this was uh, – again, this was a, a distinctly different team than what I have seen in previous years. Um, much, much better, much improved. And a team that honestly before Clemson made their offensive coordinator change recently – This is a team that I was really prepared to cook up a take and say, I I think these guys win the ACC in 2023. Um, With the way that Jordan Travis played, the way that they were able to go out and dominate teams. um, And I think some of the way that we've seen Mike Norvell really successfully use the transfer portal in constructing their roster over the last few years. Uh, That's another thing that's really helped to give them an advantage. uh, And and it's something that is a model, I think, for a, a lot of programs looking around and seeing guys like Jermaine Johnson, Jared Verse. Johnny Wilson, a number of their biggest best players the last couple of years have come out of the transfer portal, which I think is kind of a unique and an important thing is other players from other programs start looking around to transfer and, and well, this worked out for other guys there. Maybe it'll work for me.
0: Since Trevor Lawrence left for the NFL, the Clemson offense has basically just been sputtering and not even just sputtering by Clemson standards or national championship uh possible standards they've been sputtering by like bad football team standards mm-hmm. this is something i've talked about a decent amount on my podcast you cover the acc is this more of a i mean we're gonna kind of know some answers here next year because there's gonna be a new coordinator uh new quarterback basically w- what's been the problem the last year's has it been a coordinator issue has it been a talent of the quarterback issue with dj ue or is it, you know, maybe talent around that? Like, w- w- why has this offense just been just terrible the last two years? It really feels like it's been a combination of things. Um, we do, you know,
1: the, the discussions that we've had on on basketball conferences, A, I think the scheme got very stale for Clemson. Um, I think that at this point, they were still basically trying to run the same stuff that Chad Morris put in at Clemson back in 2011. Except... Chad Morris put it in, he left for Arkansas. You had uh, Jeff Scott and Tony Elliott running it. Those guys both were gone. And now you had Brandon Streeter, you you had your second removal of of the guy who originally installed it, trying to run the same stuff. It just, and it wasn't working. There was no innovation. It was never anything different. You'd hear rumors of coaches and and other teams saying, well, we know exactly where they're gonna run. The only reason it ever works is because they've got guys that are bigger, faster, stronger, but like, it's nothing creative, it's nothing interesting. So scheme wise was definitely a piece of it, and and of course game planning and uh, play calling those kinds of things at the coordinator spot. Um, I think yeah, DJU. I don't know what went on with him, but there was some definite like it. It felt like things became like a mental issue with him. Like he almost got the yips. There were a couple of throws that he had. I think in the South Carolina game where it was like just trying to throw a quick little flare pass to like the running back or or something like that, and it was skipping the ball like. We've seen a guy that's got a massive arm. I thought of him as almost comparable to like a Cam Newton type. I mean, just big, fast, you know, cannon arm can run, like all this. And he's sitting there like shorting six yard out passes. Like what how is that happening?
0: So if you read I think that his, was definitely a piece of it. If you read his 24 7 sports like profile, um, like when he got recruited, I remember reading it before the season he started. It was like he's a five star. And it was just, like, the most glowing, like, description that you could say about, like, a quarterback. And you're like, ah, oh, crap. Clemson found another one. Dang it. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, Iowa State played them in the Cheese it Bowl, uh, like, a year ago. And it was every time they drop back to pass, you were like, as an Iowa State fan, you are like, yes, do that every play, please. This is not <laughs> working when you guys do that. Do not run the ball. Do not do that. You guys will be able to mm-hmm. score if you run the ball. But it was just... Yeah, we'll we'll finally be able to see this year. They're gonna have a new quarterback, another offensive coordinator. Why don't they we talk- seem to
1: have? Uh, I was gonna say too. They they seem to have struggled to develop the offensive line, and their wide receivers also just struggled to get separation. So I mean, Will Shipley was like a really good thing for that offense, but otherwise it seemed like almost I'll call it a total system failure as much as you can for like a ten and two team, but definitely a team that badly underperformed their talent levels on that side of the ball. Um, again, with the coordinator change, maybe that starts to make the difference. Same thing with a, a quarterback change here, but it, it was it was a number of things, and and all of them were problematic for that team.
0: We'll be able to see. Hopefully, rooting for DJU to be good at Oregon State. They're a team that had quarterback struggles last year, so hopefully, just new environment. Maybe we'll wake up in uh, October next year and they'll be like seven and two in uh, Oregon State. So, why don't we transition here to Louisville I talked to a Louisville podcaster a few weeks ago on here and it was always just a weird thing with Louisville where it seemed like they always kind of had like a, a weeknight game so I felt like I watched them a lot more than you know just other teams and it was always trying to like figure out to pick them or not pick them it was like it seemed every time you were like so sure that like oh they're gonna win this game they'd end up screwing it up and then you were like, okay, I, I watched, I picked them last time. They screwed up, not picking them this time. Then they'd pull something out of their, you know, their pants and just end up getting a crazy win. What was the deal there? Is it something with like just the dysfunction of the entire athletic department of why that Scott Satterfield tenure was pretty rocky? Or was it just that Scott Satterfield just maybe wasn't, you know, all that it was cracked up to be? Because when he ended up leaving a few months ago, it seemed like both sides were happy.
1: It was a total like roller coaster That whole tenure really was. I mean, that first year he was there, 2019, it was coming off the absolute cratering of Bobby Petrino, the end of that era. And it was like, okay, this is going to take a few years. And then year one, they go like eight and five. Um, I remember that opening night and kind of hanging with Notre Dame in that game. It was like, where did this come from? This team should be terrible. Uh, 2020, they come back. I think they went four and seven. Like they lost a bunch of close games, had a bunch of turnover issues. 2021, they come back and it's, I think there were six and six, seven and five, something like that. And it was kind of a couple of bad losses, a couple of pretty good wins. Like nobody's really sure how to feel about it. Of course, after that first year, I believe is when he had the flirtation with like South Carolina or a couple other programs that I think pretty immediately got the fan base to where it's like, I don't trust this guy. I don't like this guy. And it just, at that point, it just never really felt like it was going to work out at any point after that. So, yeah, I mean, this was just – and this season was a perfect roller coaster, too. I mean, that opening night, they lose at Syracuse. And I I was sitting there thinking to myself at this point, like, oh, he's fired. He's done. Like, no way. They go beat UCF. Oh, that's a good win on a Friday night. They lose to Florida State in a game where they blew a lead. Ooh, that's kind of rough. Go and, and house South Florida. That's good. Oh, you lost to Boston College in a pretty ugly game. Yeah, he's done. We're over. And then you go rip off four wins in a row. Okay, well, maybe we got something here. You know, you get housed by Clemson, that's fine. Like, it's just this total back and forth thing week over week. You had some QB health issues with Malik Cunningham. Um, He was struggling to stay healthy. It did seem like the defense got better through the year and was – this is about the best that Louisville's defense had been since Satterfield showed up and even, you know, a few years before that probably. So there there was some development there. But like you said, I mean, it just – it never felt like these two sides were happy with each other. It always felt like one side wanted to get rid of the other. And, uh, you know, Louisville wants to get rid of Satterfield. Satterfield wants to leave. But it was never like a, a good position to do so. Like he he never had anywhere to jump to. Louisville didn't want to go through the trouble of firing him and trying to hire someone else. So it was this uncomfortable, strange situation. Um I think everyone is probably in a happier place now with Satterfield having left, gone somewhere else. I weird hire by Cincinnati to me. I don't know why they did that. Um, I don't know what made Satterfield a, uh, a desirable candidate truthfully, but I think Louisville looked around, saw that happen. was like, Oh, cool. Like, okay, great. Um, Turn around, hired Jeff Brom who they really wanted to hire four years ago. Uh, Cannot imagine how that would have worked out any better for Louisville. Didn't have to pay a buyout and get the guy that you always wanted. And, um, seems like a, a pretty well-regarded coach. So, I don't know what to make of this Louisville program, honestly, um, and what it has been. I do think that the outlook is very, uh, very positive for them moving forward, especially with the the you know the fact that we're going to be getting rid of divisions moving forward. Louisville not necessarily having to play Florida State and Clemson every year, um, having the NIL program that they have, having Jeff Brom and, and the level of support behind him with the fan base all of it. I just think, I, I think that this is about as optimistic as you will find Louisville fans moving forward. So weird year. It was a weird tenure. I don't know. It was probably a combination of things like you mentioned. I mean, the, the some of the dysfunction within the athletic department, they've they've had stuff dealing with the school administration and the athletic department and NCAA violations and basketball and football. And just, I mean, it's it's been kind of everything it, it, we, we talk about it on our show. It feels like almost if you get to the point where it seems like nobody's paying attention to Louisville, it's like, they're going to set themselves on fire. Like make sure that you remember that they're there. I mean, it's just, it's bizarre, but um, yeah, weird year for Louisville, but it seems like the, the, the trajectory is looking much higher moving forward.
0: Duke was a pretty surprised team this season. Mike Elko first year able to win nine games in a job that you would consider a school that probably doesn't care that much about their football program, sound on both sides of the ball, really good year for Duke. How was Elko able to just put up this many wins in year one? Was it maybe a weak schedule? Like What happened there in uh, Duke this year?
1: I, I don't know. You, you get me, you know, you keep asking me like what happened in, you know, with XYZ ACC team, I keep telling you, I don't know. Like <laughs> this conference, even for people that watch it really closely, is kind of bizarre to follow and try to understand at times. Um, yeah, I mean, Mike, Mike Elko, if not for a, a first year head coach taking a team to the national title game in Sonny Dykes, I, I mean, Mike Elko, just go ahead and write it in Sharpie by like mid-November that he was going to be the ACC coach of the year felt like he easily had a case for national coach of the year with where this duke program was just a year ago coming off the cutcliffe tenure for them to come out and go 9 and 4 i mean was just it was incredible and it was it caught us all off guard um, i think we were trying to decide if they were going to win 3 or 4 games this year and they could go in 9 i mean just incredible incredible coaching job i think kind of what you referred to was was really the best way i could describe it is that like duke was like aggressively competent there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of anything I felt like that they did that was really uh, impressive, like, incredible, outstanding, like, unique. It was just they didn't make mistakes. They didn't shoot themselves in the foot. They got, uh, man, my, my name's already leaving me here in the uh, early offseason. But, yeah, they got great quarterback play. Uh, the defense was really solid, competent. Um, it, again, not wildly talented, but Mike Elko, you know, pretty well-regarded uh, defensive coach. He had spent time at Wake Forest, went to Notre Dame, went to Texas A&M, had a great defense. So it was an aggressively competent team. And as things go in the ACC, that'll take you a long way. <laughs> they were able to win a lot of games. They went 5-3 and three in ACC play. Uh, they beat up – I think they got a little bit lucky. You know, they had to go make a road trip to Northwestern. Northwestern has kind of started to fall off in the last couple of years. So if you're playing that game, maybe four or five years ago, it might've gone differently, but uh, it was fortuitous that it worked out the way it did. Same thing with temple temple has kind of fallen off a cliff uh, in the last three, four years. So uh, those were, you know, good matchups for, for the sake of Duke, I think, you know, but I mean, they hung with a good Kansas team. Uh, they nearly knocked off North Carolina that we talked about. They hung with a really good Pittsburgh team and they won a bowl game against UCF. So you know, really impressed with that team with, with Duke and, and moving forward. It's like, I have to imagine. I really wasn't sure if anybody other than David Cutcliffe could do what he had done there in terms of kind of raising the floor and, and making that a consistently competent, like uh, competitive team. But it's like, after one year, it's like, Oh yeah. Like as long as Elko will, will stay there, I think that they'll, probably have that, you know, elevated floor. They should be roughly making a bowl game every year. And that's just, it's, it's pretty bizarre to think that given the history of where Duke has been for the longest time leading to David Cutcliffe's tenure.
0: You're a Georgia Tech alum. It's been a interesting few years transitioning away from the triple option offense and rebuilding the roster. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I had to let uh, Jeff Collins go this year. How, how are you feeling right now about the future of, just Georgia tech football in general, is it, is there optimism right now? Is it bleak, just maybe hopeless? Cause you're just in the same state as, as Georgia, that is just dominating the sport. Yeah. How are you feeling about Georgia tech football right now?
1: Yeah. The Georgia thing is a whole other discussion and it's uh yeah, it's kind of miserable. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a thing where you're taught basically from the moment that you step into freshman orientation, you know, that you you hate Georgia. And I, I would not be happier if they never won a game again. Like, it would be great. But obviously, that's not where we're at right now. Um, as far as, you know, the future of Georgia Tech, I'll say, like, you know, cautiously, mildly optimistic, we'll say. I don't know what the ceiling is for for Brent Key and his tenure and, and the staff that he's putting together. I do believe that the floor is going to be higher than what you saw under Jeff Collins the last few years. I, I think part of where my frustration came in, especially the last like two years, 21 and 22 under Collins was, if there was ever any mention of like, well, they're transitioning from the triple option and it takes a while. No, like the, the issues that this team was having was not personnel related. It wasn't like, well, our, our linemen are still too small, or we, we haven't done this. It, it was like, it was coaching it was attitude and and like it was things like accountability, like guys making mistakes all the time that weren't getting pulled out of the game. Like it was just total mismanagement and total incompetence from that team. And what was interesting to me was that he was fired after four games. They they lose to Clemson, Ole Miss, and UCF in in weeks one, three, and four. And you wouldn't fault any coach really for losing those games at that point, but it had gone on long enough. They'd gotten shut out by Ole Miss. They they looked terrible against UCF. Brent Key comes in and six days later, that team plays hard, goes into Pittsburgh, and wins. And it was like it was a night and day difference in the way that the team played when Jeff Collins was not on the sidelines. And it was like it was clear that something had changed. And so, again, talking about like being aggressively competent – There are things about Georgia Tech and that program and the school, especially, and and where it's situated in Atlanta. Like it sounds great that, you know, Oh, you're in Atlanta. It's a recruiting hotbed. You can get talent left and right. Well, it's like, well, there's, there's all sorts of perception issues. There's, you know, it's a, it's a very rigorous as well as narrow academic school. Like there are things that are built in that I think limit the ceiling of the program, but this is also a team that made a bowl game. I think every year for almost three decades, uh, prior to, uh, I guess, prior to 2015, I think when there was just like a million injuries for Paul Johnson, but they had made a bowl game every year for like 30 years, going back to the, the early 90s, basically. There is no reason that you can't be that, you know, a, a minimum six and six, seven and five level program that occasionally has, you know, an up year from time to time. I think that Brent Key and that staff will be able to get us there. What I don't know is how much more will they be able to do um, and tech also has some like real budgetary issues that they're fighting some, some debt payments and stuff that, um, are, are limiting their ability to keep up with the, uh, financial arms race that college football has become over the last 15 years. So I don't, I don't know what the ceiling is at this point, but what I do believe is that Brent key will make that team look a lot more competent. They're going to be a little bit more physical, Uh, They're not going to be mentally fragile. They're not going to play favorites with certain players here and there. Um, And they will at least be competitive in games where previously it's like something would go bad in the middle of the second quarter. And all of a sudden it's like the dam opens up and the team just quits playing. Like, so cautiously, mildly optimistic, I'll say. Um, I think there's a, there's a chance that it could work out really well for tech, but I think more than likely it's, it's a bit of a reset period. Um, You know, take care of the finances, just, try to get the fan support back a little bit. And then I think there's a decent chance that you're probably making another coaching change within three to four years and maybe shooting a little bit more for the stars, depending on what you can pull together financially there.
0: Probably I could just title this podcast, the ACC is a weird conference. That's kind of one of the conclusions that we've (laughs) reached here today. Absolutely is. One thing I've noticed just over the last few years, just kind of covering college football a little bit and looking at the ACC, there's a lot of teams that just seem to have endless pools of money like we have talked about today, such as like a Clemson, a Miami, Louisville, you talked about their NIL, things that they have going on. North Carolina certainly has a a decent amount of money. And then there are other schools that struggle to keep the lights on is maybe a little, uh, maybe not true, but just don't seem to have like the money. Cause I remember looking a year or two ago when I remember like the Virginia schools had their job openings and just looking at like the athletics, like grading of what the job actually was. And it was kind of shocking to me to look at like the Virginia school specifically. I hate singling them out. But there was just like, wasn't that good of a grade of like a job? And I was like, well, they seem to like always like be good. Frank Beamer was at uh, Va Tech for a while. And then Brock- Bronco Mendenhall was pretty good at Virginia for a while. Like, why aren't these, you know, and obviously there's like the the pretty bad TV deal with the ACC right now. Where the Yeah, yeah where the, the deal doesn't expire until like the 2030s versus right. you know every other conference, Power Five conference right now is renewing their TV deals within the last few years. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm gonna, I didn't want to be too pessimistic with this question, so I added another part to it. But out of all some of these teams that are at the bottom of the conference, like uh, Boston College, you know the Virginia schools, um, which one of them would you say has like the bleakest future? But to add an optimistic wrinkle to it, I mean you could throw Georgia Tech in here too. Who also has the the best future maybe this is just a low valley in their journey right now and they'll they'll come back
1: it's a good question um it's interesting you know almost almost all of these schools have upside you know we we did a a show on our um on our podcast before the season trying to get a better understanding of some of these schools and programs you know at a more intimate level and one of them that we talked about was boston college that's a program that you look at it and you say, oh, it's a college football team in Boston. They're deep in New England. There's not a lot of local talent. Um, it's it's not a big town. It's, it's not a huge fan base. Like, there's, like, all these reasons that they shouldn't be particularly good. And then you go through, look through history, and it's, like, there has never really been, like, an extended downtime for them. Like, they historically have actually recruited, like, semi-nationally pretty well. They have always really been, like, a decent, you know, average-ish team at worst uh, for over longer stretches of time. Obviously, they've had a couple bad years under, you know, Steve Adazio or this year they were pretty rough as well, you know, but um, over the long term, you know, they they can uh, they have shown over the years that like they can hang and they can be a a mid-level college football team. Um, Obviously, you mentioned Virginia Tech and some of their history, not even just the Frank Beamer, I guess mostly the Frank Beamer years, but there's reason to believe that there is a lot of fan support there, that there is there is some money to be had. Um, they've got a, a foothold, you know, in a pretty good recruiting area between, you know, Virginia as well as North Carolina and the DMV. Um, that whole area, like, that's a good thing. The one that I do wonder about, I guess, I'll say is Virginia. Um, that's a program that historically I don't think has had the sustained peaks um they have they have often struggled to kind of just remain at that average level uh, for for a majority of their history. I don't think it's for a lack of money, necessarily. Like I think they have the money. Um, certainly, their basketball team being really good for the last decade almost um, has been kind of a positive thing for for the athletic department there. But I don't know if it's just you know internal decision making, what exactly it is for them? If I had to pick a team, and and if you gave the list again, it was Boston College, the Virginia Schools, Georgia Tech. Is there anyone else that you would throw in of, you know, who who of those has the most optimistic outlook?
0: Maybe throw Wake in there, too. Wake.
1: Um, If you throw Wake in there, yeah, I'd say Wake for sure, honestly, um, with the way that that thing is going. And it seems like Dave Clawson's going to be there until until he retires. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think for them, you know, I I would definitely say them, you know, I, they're at a point where, again, their history has not really been like sustained success for the most part in football, but like Dave Clawson's got them to the point where if you pick them to go worse than seven and five, you're probably going to be wrong. Like he's
0: he's good. I shouldn't have thrown him in there.
1: (laughs) They're good. Honestly, if I, if I look at those programs you mentioned over the next like three years, who do I expect to probably be the best? I'd probably say Virginia Tech. Um, I I really like that Brent, uh, the Brent Pry hire, Brent Pry, Brent Brent Key, Um, so we gotta keep those straight. Uh, Brent Pry, I think a very good hire, Um, the guy who was a longtime assistant of James Franklin at Penn State, even going back to his days at Vanderbilt. Um, He's seen what the recruiting operation to look like. He knows that general region of the country. Um, has always run really good defenses. Like there is so much of that hire and that staff that I like and I think is set up for success uh, over the call it the near term, you know, the next three to five years. Um, so that's that's the one that I, I think the most highly of. The one that I am I have I've come out on the podcast and I have been pretty much you know on front street with this take. Um, I don't think that the Tony Elliott thing is going to work out at Virginia. Now, I, I know there was the, the tragedy towards the end of the season. You had three players murdered, like absolutely awful, awful, awful. Cannot imagine what it's like to deal with that. Like, I know that community is still kind of grieving and still kind of recovering from that. Um, I, and I don't want to make light of that. I don't want to ignore that. None of those things. But I, I came up with that take, you know, well before that happened. The reason was, you know, Tony Elliott, as we mentioned earlier, was associated with some kind of declining Clemson offenses. Don't know how much he brings to the table in terms of, of uh, coaching and and, and uh, development, basically, those kinds of things, scheme, et cetera. I thought his staff that he put around him was very inexperienced, um, almost a total lack of Power 5 experience on that whole staff, which was something very comparable to what Jeff Collins did when he came into Georgia Tech and I thought was something in retrospect that was a big failure of his. Um, so the assistants and such who were there were not a, a big success. I think those things kind of combined. It's like, I don't think that that program is set up to maintain the success that you saw under Bronco Mendenhall. Um, and given what that program historically has been, it is very easy, I think, to slip back into a, you know, towards the bottom of the ACC on a consistent basis. Um, I, I'm at the point where I, I, I don't know that that Tony Elliott is going to be the answer there in Virginia. I know he was a guy that, again, was pretty well sought after a potential head coaching candidate for a number of years when he was on the, the Clemson staff. It was it seemed like a good thing when Virginia hired him, but I am not convinced that that's going to work out. And, in fact, I think it's probably going to fail here within the next two to three years, we'll call it.
0: Virginia Tech seems to have enough of a history and just a, an atmosphere where they should be able to bounce back in uh, some way whether it's brent pry or you know somebody else that would come along after him virginia basketball school their basketball school now they've they've always kind of been a basketball school so maybe some of those basketball schools you typically see sometimes don't like put the resources into their football department as maybe they need to or at least that's kind of the excuse that's always given to them the team that i would probably have picked on like the the uh, the pessimistic view of the bleakest future is Boston college, because this is a person living in Iowa, you know, not hundred percent locked in the ACC. That's why I have you on here today. Sometimes I ever get there like in the conference and they're like a team. <laughs> I just do like mm-hmm. in both, like in both major sports, men's basketball and football. It's like, I'm like, Oh yeah, Boston college, they're a thing. And I've got like a Boston college, like fan page that like follows me on Twitter and so I can't, like, say too many bad things about them. But, yeah, that's, like, the team where it's just like, oh, yeah, they're they're in the ACC. I forgot about that. So that would probably be my pick, but I'm not sure.
1: Well, and you've probably heard the, uh, the old trope or the game that are played on other shows, which is, quick, name the seven teams in the Coastal Division. Like... The ACC is, like, the most, like, anonymous, like, strange conference trying to figure out, you know, who's in it or trying to remember. I've done a podcast on the conference for seven years now, and I have to – I know that there's 14 teams in the conference, but even I still have to, like, really think it through if you ask me to name all 14 teams, like, right off the bat. It, it would take me a minute to think through, okay, the seven in the Atlantic are, you know, these ones. And, the, you know, like I think maybe Maryland part of that there? is – what's that, Maryland? They it's Maryland, Maryland in there? Like, I can't
0: remember. <laughs>
1: Exactly. They, um, I think, if if anything, maybe that's just from, you look at the the map, you know, and it's it's Florida, it's Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, um, New York, Massachusetts. Like it, it is like a really spread out footprint. So uh, you, you kind of work your way from south to north. It's easy to miss somebody in there if you uh, if you don't know who you're thinking about.
0: Well, wow. Syracuse is the other team I should have thrown in there instead of Wake. I'm sorry, Wake. We should have thrown Syracuse in there. Another uh, yeah. basketball school. Um, Joey, I think we're out of time Mm -hmm. today. We didn't get to cover every team, but I think we covered most of it. Uh, can you tell people where they can find your guys's podcast and where they can follow you on social media so they can keep up with all of your work and your commentary?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm at FTRS Joey on Twitter um, or at BC podcast ACC on Twitter for the, the combined podcast account. Uh, We're on iTunes, we're on Spotify, uh, Google Play, I think Amazon Music, anywhere you would normally go get your podcasts, uh, you can go find us there. Uh, We we have a lot of fun. We talk ACC football all all year round. You know, it slows down a little bit in the offseason as there's only so much news and content to discuss, but uh, we're there. You know, if you want to keep up with the ACC, what's going on in the conference, I, I know that I've got friends who are fans of... SEC and Big Ten programs that are like, no, no, no I, I listen to your podcast to make sure that I keep up with uh, what's going on in that that side of the world. So, um, you know, all are welcome. We have a lot of fun. We make a lot of jokes. Nobody's safe. Not my own team, not anyone's team. So uh, come join us, have a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully enjoy listening to us and uh, learning a little bit about the
0: ACC. All right. Thanks again, Joey. Thank you, James. That is going to do it for the podcast today. Thank you for listening. Please go rate, review, subscribe to the Sports Detective Podcast feed wherever you get your podcast. Uh, Make sure you go follow Joey Weaver on the platforms that he said. If you want to go and listen to them, he said they are going to be dropping a podcast within the next few days talking about some ACC football stories. So if you want to hear more about ACC football other than here, they will have you covered over there on their podcast. Um, If you want to follow me, go to Twitter, type in JDMajor2. You'll get podcast updates and my occasional commentary on live sporting events. If you want to follow the podcast on Instagram, the URL is JWSDetective. And as always, guys, thank you for listening, and I will talk to you next time.